This is a pre-recorded version of the WTKA Roundtable <laughs> on WTKA, unsurprisingly, 9 o'clock Thursdays. It is pre-recorded, however, so if you call in, no one will answer. Folks, here are the Michigan Insider Sports Talk 1050 WTKA online at WTK.com. Sam Webb, Ira Weintraub. On the other side, the MGO Blog Roundtable crew, at least times two, not times three this morning. No Craig Ross, but we have the crew that started it all over at MGO Blog, starting off first with our good friend Brian Cook. Brian, how are you? I'm good. How are you? Doing outstanding. And Seth Fisher. Seth, how are you? I got to stop getting on for these sound checks because I end up on the radio instead. <laughs> right. Right. Well, hey, man, you know, there are tougher tasks than being on the, for the final segment of the eight o'clock hour. But, uh, you know, one of the things that I regretted last week about the roundtable is that I had talked about Gary Moeller so much during the week leading up to the roundtable that I didn't actually talk about him with the roundtable crew. So want to rewind the tape a little bit. And just get both of your takes on on the life and times of Gary Moeller coaching at Michigan, his impact and significance in, in the history of Michigan football, and maybe what your memories were or are your fondest memories of, of watching Gary Moeller, starting with you, Brian. Well, so Moeller, I think, was an important step in the modernization of Michigan football because, you know, Bo's Bo. Uh, and even when... Bo had Jim Harbaugh and other quarterbacks who could actually throw the ball. It wasn't really his preference. And and Gary Moeller was the first time where, you know, you saw Michigan sort of emphasize the passing game. Now, not nearly to the extent that we see today, but the kind of numbers that Elvis Gerback was were, was putting up would never have happened under Bo. I mean, he had a wide receiver win the Heisman Trophy. That... <laughs> <laughs> that would not have happened under Bo. That would not have happened under <laughs> Bo Schembechler. Uh And so, you know, his his teams, you know, had a, a bunch of losses in there and people were kind of discontent. But he's also the guy who put together kind of the foundations of the 1997 team. So he, he deserves a lot of credit for, you know, putting together a team that had Tom Brady on it, had Charles Woodson on it, had Brian Greasy on it. Just just a bunch of guys who came through and and had a, a magical season and then he was the most successful Lions coach in the history of the franchise. <laughs> so <laughs> obviously he was doing something right to get <laughs> fired by Matt Millen. <laughs> that, I mean, so I, for me, it, like I, I, I have a memory of Moeller because I like got into my super Michigan fandom when Moeller was the coach, like 91 was, you know, when, when I was bit right. Like before that, I, watched Michigan games with my dad or, you know, had a Michigan shirt that I wore at school, but knowing who the players were and like, you know, following things. I, that was, that started in like under Moeller. Um, 
But I also remember going with the flow. Like in that, when he was fired, my sense was that it was like more for the two four loss seasons than it was because of the actual incident. Now I come at him from like you know this perspective. I've done a lot of uh, Michigan history. I've done like a lot of these podcasts with Doctor Sapp, where we've talked to players from over this entire era and have a much greater appreciation for Moeller as the assistant coach. He might be the, if not uh, the best, if not at least like one of the top two or three great assistant coaches of all time. And I think that there's this interplay uh, throughout history with coaches and their assistants where like the coach is the bad cop and the and then the, there's an assistant coach who's the good cop. And Moeller was Bo's good cop. Because it wasn't going to be Jerry. It wasn't Jerry was like the the brains in the operation, but like Moeller was the guy that they liked, and he was built for that. He was the there was a reason they liked him. He understood football as a game more than Bo did. I think Bo came from this generation. He's Woody's guy, right? He came from this generation that had come out of World War II, thinking let's train these guys the same way we trained all the troops, and. Uh, and Bo was always that kind of general who, you know, that, that led him into problems sometimes as well. And Moeller was the guy, he had this um, he had this drill. Every coach has a drill, right? And Moeller's drill was they kind of do a fake interception. They have to run it back. They have to block it perfectly and set it up perfectly. And then you have to cheer perfectly with your team. And if anybody's not cheering his head off, they got to run the hole back again. And the idea was just to get them used to having fun again and have them get that sense. Moeller always wanted his players to have a sense that they were out there playing high school football and, and enjoying themselves and, and loving the game. And I think that's one of the reasons that so many of those guys who come back um, still have such a love of the game. It's not a, you know, people look at the Bo era and think it was all because of Bo Schembechler, but there are so many people at Michigan events who are Gary Moeller people, and not just Michigan guys, like guys who played with him in high school or played for him in high school. Uh, guys, uh, his old teammates from Ohio State show up sometimes. And it's uh, guys who play from Illinois, sometimes Lions, or uh, yeah. I think it was with the Jaguars. There was a guy from the Jaguar, a guy who played with him for the Jaguars. Like people who knew Gary Moeller would always show up. And I, I really think that at the time, I never would have known this. But I think that Michigan maybe lost one of their best coaches uh, to that whole thing, and you know, maybe we should have been wiser. Yeah, I think I think that you know, the the perspective on him would be wildly different if he wasn't such an unfortunate victim of circumstance. I mean, the dude just was the the coach who recruited Desmond Howard, Charles Woodson, Rick Leach, Tom Brady. Rick, yeah, if you go yeah. back, Rick, Rick Lee. Yeah, he he was Bo's Ohio guy. He was the one but who I, all just, those Ohio I'm, guys. But, but I was just focused on, on the time as head mm -hmm. coach. Mm -hmm. He had all those guys recruited to Michigan in that five-year window. If he could have just had good luck one of those years, one of those years, if Desmond doesn't get felt up in the end zone in, in 1990, they, they throw the flag in 1990, right? Mm -hmm. in, in 91, if Derek Alexander doesn't get hurt. Right. Uh, I mean, in in 94, which 24 seven is killing me this morning, <laughs> just for just a gratuitous video of Colorado throwing the, the bomb in 94. Like that dude should have a, it feels like if he just gets good luck one year, he's in the national title hunt. And but for being snake bit in all those years, he would have been. It's, it's very true. And 
I think that Michigan probably would have been similar to what they were. I think they still, they probably still would have had a couple maybe fallback years in 95 and 96. Uh, but keep in mind, Lloyd Carr made Fred Jackson his, uh, his offensive coordinator. And going from Moeller, who knew every part of football, I mean, this guy coached quarterbacks, he coached defense, he coached the offensive line, he, he, was, he coached all over the place. Um, and, and then he was a great offensive guy, too. Going from, you know, his staff, and he had Les Miles, and he had Cam Cameron on his staff, like the, the guys that he had versus, I love Fred Jackson, but I don't think Fred Jackson should have been the offensive coordinator. And I think, I think Freddie <laughs> J only got a year, though. You got to get a man some time to grow into the job, don't you? Yeah, I I, I love Fred Jackson, but I've watched the I've actually watched film on the 95 team. And it's like, come on. I mean, this is I know exactly what's coming here. Like the the stuff that we talk about with Lloyd Carr and his, you know, and his stodgy offense. It was never as bad as it was the first two years. Yeah, well. (laughs) <laughs> it definitely going from a, a veteran play caller uh, and an offensive innovator, clearly like Gary Moeller in, in a, at a time of controversy uh, and who's the quarterback. Remember, you're breaking in a, a new quarterback yeah. and, and it, it, you had a lot of factors that went into it. But make no mistake on on the Gary Moeller piece, the appreciation for how far in a very short period of time he brought Michigan's offense. I mean, that's another thing that I think you almost had to be there for mm-hmm. to really fully appreciate it because we can talk about it. But you I mean, just go back and look at the 89 film <laughs> and, then, and then look at then look at 90 through 94 and and tell me that it's just a totally different team, totally different approach to offensive football. And and we had Gerbach in 89. He just wasn't using him. And, and I and I get it. You have your fifth year quarterback and like, you know, that that. It, it made sense, but it was we had Desmond Howard on that team too, and it's like, how can you not using this guy? Um, and that I, I now looking at it historically, people were saying, "Oh my God, we're gonna waste him like we wasted Anthony Carter." Like we had like the best player in college football, and this guy doesn't win the Heisman because he only gets forty targets all season. And like, are you gonna do that with him too? Uh, but yeah, it, it felt wide open. He went for it on fourth down all the time too. That was the other thing about Muller. No one went for fourth down back then. <laughs> <laughs> oh man, you kill me. I, I said ninety with Michigan State getting felt up. The Notre Dame game that year. Mm-hmm. It's like, oh god, you're killing me. Mm-hmm. Uh, someone just uh, brought up the, all the running backs he had. John Vaughn went for two hundred yards in that game, the Stonebreaker game, as I call it. He was just freaking snake bit. <laughs> and if he if he could have just gotten one. I think that the regard outside of Michigan, because I think Gary Moeller, the regard for Michigan within, uh, for Gary Moeller within the Michigan family uh, is extremely high. I think the the national recognition for Gary Moeller would be much different if he could have just gotten it one of those years. So uh, I, I didn't want to let it, let this, uh, this opportunity go by to let you guys get in on that as well, um, uh, because I missed it last week. So I apologize for that. Uh, we left off when we left off last week. We were we were talking about how the Big Ten sort of shapes up on the basketball side. We I'll save that for after I depart and stick with the football side of things real quick, guys. And sort of get your early take, your early read as we talk some actual football on on the Big Ten this year. Is it just is it as simple as saying it's Michigan versus Ohio State again, Brian, uh, for oh. Big Ten supremacy? 
I, I would find it. <clears throat> I mean, Penn State might have an argument in there if they can find a quarterback, but yeah, that's pretty much how I look at it. I mean, you, Michigan State was uh, decent last year, but if you look at their underlying numbers, like they had about the same S and P ranking as Nebraska, <clears throat> and Nebraska was snake bit, but the, uh, Michigan State was one of the luckiest teams in America last year, and has to replace quite a bit. And we'll see if they can patch together a team through the portal as well as they did last year. But I kind of feel like, um, honestly, if you're asking me, I, I don't really think it's Michigan versus Ohio State. It's like Ohio State is <laughs> someone's got to beat them, right? And mm-hmm. Michigan did it last year. They were at home. They had the Heisman finalists at defensive end. They they really benefited from Ohio State's chaos on at defensive coordinator. And, you know, Ohio, Ohio State had that that turnaround midseason, but all of their fits were really simplistic, and Michigan was able to really exploit that. That's not going to be the case this year. So I think Ohio State is the clear favorite in the league, and you're hoping that Michigan's defense is going to be at a level where they can reasonably expect to go into Columbus and make it a, a good game. Uh, I mean, their offense looks like it, it will be really good, but you lose Mike McDonald, you lose Aiden Hutchinson, you lose uh, David Ojabo, you still have questions at, I think, cornerback, you have questions at defensive end. So <clears throat> if Ohio State isn't in a state of decline where Ryan Day really isn't it, I think that they're the clear favorite. Seth? Yeah, that's pretty much true. Uh, Ohio State's in a tier of their own right now. They're probably national champion. Sh- uh, the, the the best pick for the national champion, I think they get the best player in the country in Jackson Smith Najiba. And, you know, that worked last year. Even, even with everything else going on in that game, and you, you remember, Ohio State was shook in that game, too. I think there was an emotional part of that game. Uh, and, and I don't think that's going to be true as much this year. They're going to be in, you know, in their own home. They're going to get everything there. Like, that's and, – and they get so much back um, for them, right? Like, Ohio State's always going to be putting a lot of guys in the pros. But they get a lot of guys back, and the guys that they lost actually had really bad games against Michigan. So I, I they're on their own tier – I do think Michigan is kind of on their own tier as well, second to that. If you look at the S&P standings, Michigan's fourth in the in the, in the preseason right now. And I think that's true. I think Michigan might be the fourth best team in the country. But the first three teams are so far ahead. The difference between Michigan and number three and Michigan and number 25 is about the same. So we're at the top of like the everybody else. And then... You know, you got Ohio State and Georgia and Alabama just functioning on an absolutely different level than college football has really ever lit. And I mean, this is there's a systemic issue that created that problem, and that problem's not going away this year. Uh, maybe Ohio State gets injured. Maybe Michigan has just a great game plan. I do think that like the meta the meta game changed. Uh, we talked about this last year in the podcast that Michigan stopped trying to you know go man on man with Ohio State last year. And I think that makes it a lot harder if you're Ohio State, if a team's been really preparing for you, uh, to move the ball with efficiency because sometimes you're just going to get got. You know, when Mm -hmm. you're getting surprised, when you're moving guys around so much and you're not putting people where they belong. And I think that's really where Michigan's going on defense this year because they don't have David Ojabo and Aiden Hutchinson to just win every single down on the edges. So they can't, they're going to have to manufacture that somehow. And the way you manufacture that. It's very clear because the Ravens have been doing it for years. They just have like a timer 
because your defensive line is so big and they're pushing in, right? And Mike Morris, he's not going to get around the guys that much, but he's going to get in there if you don't if you give him enough time. And that and it's you know that's that's what they're going to be based off of. You're going to have this push, and in the meantime, you're not going to know where guys are, and your first and second read might not be good. And college quarterbacks don't make a third read very well. And Michigan's got a really nice, easy schedule, a nice, easy ramp up to get good at these things. So maybe, maybe. <laughs> so, so you you mentioned a nice, easy buildup, and it does feel that way, especially with the non-conference. I mean, it's non-conference is soft as Charmin, right? But mm-hmm. uh, you start out on the road in Big Ten, or you know, your your first road game in Big Ten play is at Iowa. Uh huh. <laughs> and then, and then the the Michigan State game, and again on paper, it looks like they should roll Michigan State. Just like I, I felt like that heading into <clears throat> heading into last year's game, and I'm curious what what you guys' concern level is about those two teams. Understand they just beat the brakes off of Iowa, but there's something about playing in Kinnick that I just I just feel like it's a house of horrors. Well, uh, yeah, you always have a, to count the Kinnick factor when you talk about playing. There's a two thousand percent chance that game's going to be at 11 p.m. Right? Like, <laughs> <laughs> it's gonna it's gonna be. Two in the morning is going to be the third quarter. That's an Iowa game. It'll be the fourth quarter. Never mind. Um, yeah, it's, you know, there are some definite spots on the schedule where Michigan could end up tripping up. And are there enough where I feel like it, you're not going to go into the last week of the season with a shot at the division title if you beat Ohio State? Probably not, because Michigan's offense should be on a level where they are able to outpace a lot of their mistakes. Like they have two quarterbacks who are coming back with experience and should be getting better. They have Blake Corum. They have uh, Donovan Edwards. They have probably one of their more loaded wide receiver cores since, uh, you know, the Avant Breston Braylon Edwards year. And they have an offensive line that I think is going to be one of the tops in the country. So yeah, I feel like they're, they have a high, high floor and the schedule makes their floor higher so there's there's going to be a lot of games that michigan just walks over the opponent and they can't keep up and then it's like can you pay it off how do you feel about those two matchups iowa and michigan state sir uh iowa i i'm gonna i'm gonna scare myself with kinnick um so that i don't have to pay attention to the iowa team because the Iowa team is exactly the team that we just rolled in the Big Ten Championship. Right. And there was no way Iowa was going to move the ball in that game. And not just because Aiden Hutchinson. They ran away from Aiden Hutchinson the whole game. Uh, now, maybe they'll have a better offensive plan than they did in this in that one. But it's Iowa. I don't see how Iowa's going to move the ball against Michigan. It could be one of those stupid 10-7 games or whatever we had in 2016. Like, that kind of thing would happen. The game is kind of ner- making me nervous. And Michigan State, they got to come to Michigan. And, like, they're going to, I don't know. Like Brian said, they were the luckiest team in the country last year. But weird things happen against Michigan State. As long as things are even and on the level, I think Michigan's a much better team than Michigan State this year. I don't want to talk too much because Michigan State fans will find it and, and make a big thing. The team that I think people are underrating a bit is Maryland. Uh, their defense yeah. is not good. Uh, but it's going to be a shootout because, you know, Talia Tagova, uh, I, I never have ever been able to pronounce this. Tagovailoa. 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 Um, I it's 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 still it's just going to be my whole life. Tagovailoa uh, is not a great quarterback. I think he's coached terribly, uh, but he can make things happen. And so it's just you know like there's going to be a random number generator, and there's so many great receivers they have. I people forget that they had like 
three of their best receivers out last year, and they added another guy from Florida who's a former five-star. So they are loaded on uh, at receiver. Their offensive line doesn't matter because Tata's not even going to stay in under center anyway. He's just going to run around like a chicken with his head cut off. And Michigan, that dude will throw it to you. Will, will yeah. he take better care of the football? Because, man, he will throw it right to the defense. Oh, he'll do that, too. He'll do that, too. But Michigan's got a very young secondary this year. And the True. reason I think Michigan really handled them last year is they had a very uh, – they had an old secondary. They had um, Brad Hawkins telling everybody where to go and what and what to do. And it was, they, were, they stayed very calm. Because what Maryland does, they'll run around until you forget what you're doing. And you – if you watch the Maryland-Michigan State game last year, it was very clear. Michigan State's secondary did not know where to be. And if you leave them out there for three seconds or four seconds, something's going to break down and they're going to leave a guy open. Michigan was very organized last year. And I'm worried you lose Dax Hill, you lose Brad Hawkins, you know, you lose Vincent Gray, who's another one of their organizers back there. And you're going to have maybe, you know, Will Johnson, a true freshman out there, possibly. Um, you know, Rod Moore's a pretty young guy. R.J. Moten's a pretty young guy. Those guys are going to have to mature in the first few games and just, you know, got to have it together. You can't let anybody get loose because those receivers are going to kill you. Yeah, I think R.J. Moten is the guy who's wearing the, I don't know that he'll be a captain. I'm calling him captain, but I think he's the captain of the secondary mm-hmm. uh, at this point. We'll see. We'll see how he handles those duties uh, when the season rolls around. We need to get to a break. I'm going to check out because I got to head up to Flint where the, the Michigan football team will be. Can't say exactly where, but they're, they're starting their pure Michigan tour in my hometown, so I'm going to go up there for that. Ira's going to take over with the with the crew from this point on. So uh, stay tuned for that, and I'll see the rest of you tomorrow here on the Michigan Insider on Sports Talk 1050 WTK The Ticket. And we are back on the Michigan Insider on Sports Talk 1050 WTK The Ticket online at WTK.com, and we had to switch our, uh, our Ticket TV screens, our channel, because, well... Sam hit a bad button, but we do have Brian Cook is with us. We got Seth Fisher with us. And we're going to continue this conversation uh, with these guys now as we move forward. And I know you're going to talk basketball. I'm going to get to it in a moment, but I got to bring up this one. All these comments that are coming out from SEC media days, ACC media days, and everything. I feel like everybody is rightfully so. I guess they're very self-serving, even if they try to claim that they're doing it for the greater good. But maybe my favorite one of all this now is Mark Stoops, the Kentucky football coach, said to Paul Feinbaum yesterday, I don't think when NIL was coming around that we thought this collective issue would become what it has. I can say that every coach I've talked to in the SEC is concerned about it. I'm guessing he's talked to like the Vanderbilt coach because he hasn't talked to the Kentucky basketball coach because the collective is going great for them. Like <laughs> these comments kind of just crack me up. Oh, I mean, the coaches are the coaches are not happy about this because coaches want to have power over their teams. I mean. Uh, well, might as well go if you're gonna go coach a bunch of professionals, go to the NBA or the NFL, where the coach, like, you know, you have to do whatever LeBron tells you to do. So I, th- that was always part of the allure for these guys. They're power mongers, right? And if they're if players are now getting paid and have agents saying, "I need them to do this," it's gonna it's going to start affecting the way that they coach. Uh, so that that's I mean that's a problem for them. I'm sure that they are miserable about that. I they never wanted to be the ones to have to pay players. They did it because they wanted to be competitive. But like there's the main the main problem. I mean everyone's going to say whatever is good for them, right? Saban's going to want the old system. Texas A&M's going to want the new system. Everyone's going to ask for whatever system benefits them. The question should not be what benefits me. The question should be what is best for our sport. They have an amazing opportunity here 
to actually grow their sport, do things for the fans because the fans like to have access to the players and, and, and feel like they're part of the game. They have an opportunity to hold on to players that they've, have, uh, they've struggled to hold on to. Guys used to go to the NFL draft after three years, right? Like their best players leave them all the time, and the NFL doesn't use guys like that all the time. You have a tremendous opportunity here to lock in players to play in the bowl games. That's another problem that they've had, right? And now that you're going to be paying them, they have an opportunity to structure it nationally in a way that's going to benefit everybody. They don't have to worry about chasing everybody who's paying players because all that's gone now, right? All that effort that they were not expending to find out who's paying whom and and get those teams in trouble or whatnot, that's all gone. You can now focus on creating some sort of, creating a system. Maybe it's just having the, like most of the money come in their fourth year, right? Like if you want to structure any deal that, you know, seniors get more than freshmen and you have to participate in the bowl game in order to get what such and such. They could make, they, they have an opportunity to control the market, especially if they could find a player group to work with, right? If the players organize into some sort of labor union, uh, they have the opportunity to structure it how they want to make their game better and in the process make the lives of all these coaches easier because they're not going to have to be playing in this insane system where you know any any moment someone else can just offer your player a million dollars to leave yeah jim phillips from the acc he said any new structure the ncaa must serve the many not a collect few we are not the professional ranks and he goes on and on but i mean he's saying it because he's in preservation mode and nick saban says it because he's in preservation mode to get back to where he wants like you're right that they need to do it for the common good but they're all they're not they're not going to there needs to be leadership who who <laughs> there needs to be leadership here. They need and I don't care if they do it with the NCAA or not. They, probably at this point, it's best to do it outside the NCAA. It's probably best for the major conferences to come together or just the Big Ten and the SEC to come together and say, here's how we're gonna do contracts, here's how we're gonna run this. Um and maybe create a league outside of the NCAA for football and basketball because well, basketball is the they have the tournament, but you don't need the NCAA for anything else. They don't do anything else. All right, guys, let's shift the conversation to basketball. We do want to talk a little hoops here on the Michigan Insider Sports Talk 1050 WTK. They take it online at WTK.com with Brian Cook and Seth Fisher from the MGO Blog, blog Roundtable. So please tell me when we're talking about Big Ten basketball, why I should not be listening to everybody that is falling in love with Indiana basketball. Um, <clears throat> I mean, they got to piece together a whole lot of different pieces right now so you always kind of wonder what's going to happen when you have a team that has so much turnover but i mean they do have trace jackson davis back like they did bring in a couple of interesting uh freshmen but it it does feel like i i I wasn't aware that people were real high on indiana oh i saw a headline today (laughs) like the headline today was like Indiana Mike Woodson with a, a great offseason has Indiana ready for whatever that was the headline I saw from somewhere today. It was this morning. And well, I've seen a lot of love, like a lot of places having Indiana in the top one, two, or three in the Big Ten. And I'm not saying that they don't have Trace Jackson Davis, but your point, Brian, to me is what I've been thinking about, which is putting it all together. Mike Woodson hasn't proven yet that he can put it all together, has he? Well, I mean, he comes in last year and they're they're not really in good shape, Indiana. And he has a season with them that's that's fairly decent. So I, I think there's uh, some potential there. I mean, I think their problem is like, what are they going to get out of Xavier Johnson? Like, he transferred from Pitt. 
he's taken a, a super senior year, I believe. And last year, he was a better shooter from three than he ever been in his career, but he was very wild. So he gave Michigan the business. But when he ran up against teams that were able to stay in front of him, he often just put up garbage. And they're going to be playing two non-shooters almost all the time because Jackson Davis and Race Thompson play next to each other. Johnson himself is uh, a guy who only got up about 100 threes last year, so he's not like a volume shooter. And I, I have questions about what that for, that fifth spot is going to look like. They have Drake, they have Trey Galloway, they have Tamar Bates who was decent last year. They have Geronimo who was hurt a lot, but their bench doesn't really look that great to me. And Miller Cops are pretty one-dimensional small forwards, so they're really going to be a lot like they were last year, except they're a year older, which does help. Um, but when you're a year older and guys are going from juniors to seniors, it's less of a bump than you get from freshman to sophomore. So I kind of feel like they'll be a good team. I don't really see them competing for the Big Ten title. Steph? Yeah, I, I'm in, in agree with Brian. I kind of always thought it was going to be an Illinois-Michigan battle this year. Um, in Indiana, I mean, yeah, sure, they could be the third because like a lot of Big Ten teams lost so much this year, right? And also... I mean, Trace Jackson Davis is a center, and I think the centers are going to eat this year because the centers have been so good in this league, and they lost so many good, and they lost a bunch of good ones. So, like those who got to keep them, I mean, and that's Illinois' problem is they they really don't have that kind of power in the center that they at center that they had before. Otherwise, they'd be a complete team. And Michigan, I mean, we all talked about them. They're the X factor, right? Like, can they get the jump out of Kobe Bufkin? Can they uh, survive with three guards? Um, Will it work, right? But I, I kind of think right now, if I had to guess, it'd be Illinois, Michigan, Indiana as the top three. Uh, Michigan State, they're replacing a lot. Like they're maybe a dark horse. I never count. They're out. not really <laughs> replacing a lot. They just kind of let some guys go and then didn't recruit anybody. <laughs> right. I think they're entering the season with nine scholarship players, and it's. I think it's kind of telling that you know Michigan's like, all right, we're gonna go to Lebanon to fill out our roster. <laughs> And Michigan State's like, yeah, we got four open chairs. It's fine. Um, <laughs> so, I mean, they need a lot of things to go right. And it just kind of feels like they'll be a decent team, but they're looking at more of an eight seed than than competing for the title. Illinois is, I mean, their, their roster is going to be really weird for anybody who's uh, watched them over the past few years because they don't really, I mean, they, they brought in Matt Meyer from, uh, from Baylor, yeah. From Baylor, but that guy's a that guy's a beanpole. He's more of a small forward than a center. And then Coleman Hawkins is uh, their only guy of significance who's over six foot seven. So unless I'm missing a transfer or a, a freshman up and comer, I mean Shannon's going to be a be a impact guy there. I yeah, but he's he's a wing, right? right. So like, I don't really see a, a necessarily see a center on their roster. Yeah, I mean that, that's that's the thing. I mean that's the, the the everything but right. I I think they're built beautifully, but losing Kofi and not replacing him is uh has really damaged them. But like you know, last year they didn't. That they had Omar Payne was their was their backup center. Yeah. Uh, they don't even have that this year. So I mean that, that's that's where you're gonna I mean, get them. They have a seven footer who's barely played, uh, and they have a. Six nine, two hundred and seventy pounds sophomore who's also barely played. So they do have a couple of guys, but 
I don't even know if these guys are on scholarship. <laughs> it's so, a really weird year in the Big Ten because of how much turnover, right? There's a lot of high-level turnover when you see, you know, Johnny Davis from Wisconsin. So you have a lot of question marks about Wisconsin. They're usually competing, but we have no idea. We talked about Kofi leaving, and that leaves a big hole in the middle. Purdue generally competes in the Big Ten, but Jaden Ivey leaving is obviously a huge loss. But they generally bring in someone else to take, you know, to step up, and they're usually competing at the top four, top six in the league. Keegan Murray leaves Iowa. They never play defense, but they expect his brother to step up and have a really good season and maybe elevate, you know, to keep them towards the top half of the league. There's just a lot of turnover in the Big Ten this year. And Seth, you mentioned it in particular in the size. There's a ton of turnover in size, but just in general, there's a lot of star power turnover in the Big Ten from last year to this year. Yeah, I mean, if Purdue can find a point guard, I think that they're going to be pretty good. I mean, Zach Eady's back, and you've got Caleb First, who's a six foot ten stretch four. Gillis is a good glue guy, and they have shooters. They have Ethan Morton. They brought in Fletcher Lawyer, who's about six feet taller than his brother. Um, they have Brandon Newman back. They they have a lot of guys, but it's like, yeah, they lost Jaden Ivey, and now it's like, how are they going to generate shots? They brought in a super senior transfer from Utah who only played about 20 minutes in the Pac-12, Pac-12 last year, and he's like their best bet at a point, and I'm just pretty skeptical of that. You know, arguing the other way is that this is a Matt Painter team, right? So Matt Painter teams historically get a lot of shots off action. So maybe they can paper over that and just be huge and shoot a bunch of threes and be Purdue. They they lost Trevion Williams too, though, didn't they? Yes, they lost Trevion Williams, but they do bring back Zach Eady. So yeah, but I mean, Eady anybody (laughs) you can you can weather losing Trevion Williams when you have a seven foot four guy who can eat up a bunch of those Yes, minutes. but Edie tends to pick up fouls. Uh, and well, I mean, he's never played. He was a nice guy. I mean, come on. We just assumed that Matt Painter went to his garden. He had been watering right. the plants <laughs> for the really tall guys, and he's going to have another seven-foot-two guy on the bench this year. And sure. one thing yeah. that one thing that bigs do as they, as they get older is they get better about fouls, except for Mo Wagner. Uh, <laughs> but in general young bigs commit a lot of fouls and older bigs get much better at that so you know i, I think you can't discount i i mean iowa purdue too much i mean i don't really know necessarily think that there's a, a clear favorite in the league it does look like the like the league is going to take a step back and then i mean if you look at what the opposition is at center it looks like this is going to be a chance for hunter dickinson to eat because a lot of the guys who gave Dickinson trouble are no longer around. Like Marcus Bingham's not around. Kofi Coburn's not around. Like if, if Michigan <laughs> hadn't lost Frankie Collins, I'd be very, I'd be pretty, pretty intrigued about what's going on here. Uh, but yeah, so you, you've Hunter Dickinson and he's probably going to be more of a shooter this year. He's probably going to refine himself a little bit. And it doesn't look like the league has nearly as much size as it used to. So yeah, the latest Joe Lenardi bracketology, I only bring it up because I mean, it's too early for any of this stuff, but he has Indiana as a four seed as the AQ from the big 10 kind of gives yeah. you what they're looking at, what people are looking at at the big 10 going into the season. Yeah. It looks like a definite step back in terms of overall conference quality. It doesn't really look like there's a potential one seed in the conference. Yeah, there's fours, fives, sixes. Michigan, he has like as a seven. And they were, Michigan was a, which is really weird though, because Michigan was a four. Oh, because he must have had both Caleb and Musa coming back or something, because they were a four and the AQ like a month and a half or two months ago, and now they're yeah. a seven and they're not the AQ. There, were, there yeah. were a lot of projections that were based on the idea that both Musa and and 
Caleb Houston would come back and <laughs> those turned out to not be accurate. They weren't paying very close attention. Yeah. All right, guys, there's a couple minutes left before we wrap up. I do want to get your thoughts, Brian, on the, uh, well, there's still a little bit of uncertainty around the hockey program, but the non-conference schedule came out. Yeah. You for a series, Harvard for a series, the home and home with Western seems like a pretty good non-conference schedule. Yeah. I mean, the one thing is that they're not leaving Michigan for any of it, but yeah. dropping the GLI, I think was just necessary, right? Because they have eight guys in the, in the world juniors camp that's going on right now. Probably six of those guys will be at the world juniors. And when it was two or three guys, it was tolerable to to play a couple of games where you didn't have your best uh, yeah, but roster. Eight, two available. lines and two pairs of defensemen. Or right? Yeah, it's right? Just, That's insane. Like, yeah, it, it's insane, and it's just not tenable anymore. So it's you know, and since it was just going to be on campuses or whatever, you know, it's it's time to let that go. But yeah, it's uh, it's fun to see BU. It's fun to fun to have that home at home against Western because Lawson is a is a great arena to visit. And after what happened last year, I'm sure that there will be some hype for that series. <laughs> they were a one seed last year oh. and uh, they have a lot of those guys back and I'll, I'll be interested to see how they are this year. And I, I feel like it's a good balance. I just don't know about like they're playing Longwood to open the season. I'm just like, <laughs> that's... I, looked at, I looked at that and maybe I'm totally wrong, but I looked at it having the old conversation I used to have with red about, you know, because the Ivy league still dictates when practices can really start for full team. And so they have the the exhibition game against Windsor, and then they have that Lindenwood series before Lindenwood, they yeah. yeah, before they play BU. And like to me, it's almost like you schedule that so you have an extra two weeks of practice before BU. You're not concerning yourself with the games. You want to make sure that your team is ready for when the competition really steps up. The yeah, level. yeah. I mean, that's the only thing is that this is going to be like Lindenwood's first series in Division One. They're a club team last year, and that's uh, what I'm saying. I think it's purely just to have practice time. I like, mean, that's why you I, do it. You Maybe or much before uh, October first as a full team. And they, they're going like, to get better practice against the development team, and they will against Lindenwood. Well, they they changed the the RPI so that you can't get punished for a win. So in terms of just like gaming the system to to make your numbers look pretty, it's not going to hurt Michigan like it would in the old old days. So it's it's not really a, a negative, but you know. I like those games. Like, find who you think the best team in Atlantic hockey is going to be and play them. Um, and try not to lose them, unlike Ohio State last year, which kept them out of the tournament. Um. <laughs> so, I, and I get, I just, I looked at it as they're gearing up for BU, right? So, you, and it's not even about who they're playing as much as you get more practice time Monday through Friday that you wouldn't get. Yeah. And you, you don't get necessarily prior to the season. It's because this hockey is so weird because you can't practice as a full team until like the week before the season yeah. starts. It's the only sport in, I think, all of NCAA that you don't have like a buildup. How long does basketball practice for? Football gets a month, right? Hockey gets Bas like a week. Basketball starts over a month ahead of time. They start in like yeah. mid September. Yeah. They well, get like over a month. They get well over a month. Football gets a month. Hockey gets like a week. Michigan's doing the international tour this year so they get like 10 extra practices too yeah great. i love you and i love that international trip and this is probably a good way to wrap up the conversation back to basketball that i think it's a great year to have it you're putting all these parts together brings your team closer together i think it's a great opportunity for them to have in july that you get this experience that you wouldn't if you had it you know another year it doesn't you know you can do it once every four years it seems like pretty good timing for juan's team with the way this chem you know this team needs to come together with no more eli right you're bringing in some new leadership and that kind of thing yeah, especially because you have you don't really know exactly what's going to happen at point guard. Like, is Llewellyn going to be enough of a point guard that he's a point and not a combo? 
uh, what are you going to get out of Kobe Bufkin this year? Like, where's Jet going to play? Like, what spot can he play the two realistically? Or is that a pipe dream? Like, and what is uh, Yusuf Hayat going to be able to bring? Like, I think that there's a lot of moving pieces, and it's it's good for Michigan that they're going to be able to take a little bit more time to put them together. And Greece is pretty. So is France. Hopefully the wildfires calm down and don't impact them because they're having an issue over in Europe with that as well. Yeah. We saw that, but France, yeah. France, that time of year is absolutely gorgeous, by the way. But uh, I, I think, too, on the long-term scale, your, Michigan needs something to offer other than what every other program offers. And this is one of those few things that, like, if you're interested in going to a school and one of them has an opportunity to go see Greece and France and another one doesn't, like, that, I think, actually matters. So I... I I love that Michigan does this, and I I hope that they recruit off of it. Guys, appreciate your time as always. It's been a lot of fun, this uh, very weird two-part edition of the the MGO Blog Roundtable. (laughs) 